This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. I think what Paul is sharing with us this morning as we go through this text is that we want to be digging, we want to be walking in the right place so that we can make the right kind of progress. We want to make the right kind of progress. You see, I think it seems like as in our culture, just when humanity is ready to, to kind of advance, right? There's this idea that happens in a cyclical way in the world was that, well, we, we've gotten to the place where everything's going well because of the power of, of, of people, the ingenuity of technology, everything's going well. And then a pandemic hits. And then there's still war, and children are still hungry, and divorces continue to happen. And there's greater anxiety and depression and discouragement in our culture and our world right now. And we think, well, gosh, we thought we had figured it out. We invented the iPhone. That's really going to help, isn't it? We feel more alienated and more isolated. And the truth is that we're not really progressing as people despite all of the advancements that we've made. And yet, the world is on a trajectory. It's on a trajectory to bring glory and honor to the one who deserves it. Not the people who are creating things to try to become like God, but actually to God himself, to the Lord of the universe. Everything that happens in this world will result in the glory of God. You see, if the death of a sinless, innocent man can bring about the glory of God, everything else can. That doesn't mean that we should be pursuing things that are in violation of God's word. But everything that happens in this world is going to be used for the glory of God. So the question for us today as individuals and as a society is, are we willing to look to God for wisdom? Do we want to dig in the right place? Or will we go out on our own, striving, working, straining, but digging in the wrong place. So this morning's text is a difficult one for this cultural moment. Our world has come a long way, in some sense, from leave it to beaver. The values that were represented on TV in the 1950s. There's this sexual revolution that took place. It led to the disruption of the nuclear family. Fatherlessness was on the, on the rise. And a sense of the ability or the freedom that one has to do whatever they want with whomever they want was a reality. In fact, it's not only acceptable, it becomes the moral good of our day and age. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go back to the 1950s as our ideal. I know that there was brokenness there. But what I'm advocating for us this morning is to listen to what Paul is saying to the church in Rome, this community of faith that are seeking to be faithful to Jesus so that we can apply it to our lives right now. I remember I shared with you a couple of times that Rome was referred to as the city of Babylon that appears in the final book of the Bible in Revelation. Uh, in Revelation, Babylon is called the mother of prostitutes and abominations of the earth in 17.5. Pretty strong language there. That Babylon is this city. And the church believed that Rome was represented in Babylon. Now, since Rome has fallen, other cities have risen up to become the Babylon of their day. 
But as I mentioned, it was a city of military, financial, cultural, political power, but it was also a place of great sexual promiscuity. Uh, following the gods of that day, men were free to engage in extramarital relationships without condemnation. It was part of the culture. Yes, you have a wife, but your wife is for procreation and for financial advancement. Your sexual pleasure can come from anything else. Women were called to be chaste and faithful to their husbands. So it's not an even deal, right? Sex was celebrated publicly in religious festivals where prostitutes would play a central role. Marriage was mainly for, as I mentioned, procreation and financial gain. Romantic love and sexual gratification between spouses was unusual and rare. Wives were not permitted to protest their husbands' escapades with unmarried mistresses, male prostitutes, or slaves. Sex between men was acceptable, but sex between women was condemned. And so as you can see, the sexual practice in our culture, despite all of the changes that we've experienced in the last 30, 40, 50 years, was very different than what was going on in the city of Rome. So what does true progression look like for us? We want to progress as individuals and as people. What does true progression look like? Are we making progress? Or is there a different and better way for people to live? So a couple of qualifications that I want to make. And I haven't even opened the Bible yet. <laughs> I'm not apologizing for any of this. I'm trying to say, here's what Jesus is saying through his word. But I think these are important things to say because I recognize that even within this room, we all have different viewpoints on, on these matters. Um, this is not a sermon on the reliability of Scripture. I am preaching from the position that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training of righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for God's work. A different sermon would be for, is the Bible reliable? I believe that it absolutely, completely is. Um, I also acknowledge that the church has not handled matters of sexuality well in the past. Some have been heavy-handed, lacking compassion, lacking humility. John Stott, who wrote a commentary on Romans that I've been using, says we are all broken sexually. Which means that instead of condemning, we should be connecting with others who are broken, just like us, but in different ways. Um, the church is not guiltless, and, and neither is the preacher, for that matter. No one is coming at this with absolute authority, unless their ideas or viewpoints are completely consistent with the Bible. We must be willing to learn and grow, but that doesn't mean that we can't speak with authority when the Word of God speaks with authority. If the Bible says this leads to flourishing for all of humanity, this is what we want to lift up because it's good for God's people. If the Bible is true, then it leads to flourishing, even if it doesn't make sense to us. God's Word transcends all cultures and all times, and it's unloving not to say something that needs to be said. Just as you want your doctor to give you the truth about your diagnosis, we all need to hear the truth about what God says from his word. And finally, as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome is a love letter. Paul loves these people. He's wanting to encourage them and to equip them and to empower them because he realizes the, the magnitude of the influence that they can make in their culture and in the world. And Paul was right because we know the difference that he made in the city of Rome and how Rome changed the entire region and essentially changed the world. 
And mostly in this letter, he is telling them about who Jesus is and what he's done. He wants them to remember, remember last week, that the righteous will live not by works, not by doing something to earn God's love, but by faith, by trusting in Jesus and allowing his word to permeate your heart, your soul, your mind, your actions in every area of who you are. That's what flourishing looks like. See, these words are designed to move people closer to Jesus. They're designed to encourage you to move closer to Jesus, to see how you can love people and love yourself. Only Jesus can do that. And as I've been studying the Bible lately, I've asked myself two questions that I think are really helpful for me to try to understand. Okay, what is, how do I make sense of the Bible? And those questions are, what does this text say about God? As I read through these passages, what does it tell me about God and his character, what he values, what he's committed to? And what does it say about people? What do I learn about myself? What do I learn about the world? As I ask those questions, then God raises up application for me. So I invite you, as you go through this text, to ask that question. What does it say about God? What does it say about humanity? And that's the Romans challenge of the week. You've been doing the Romans challenge. Did anybody memorize the Bible verse from last week? That was it? Anyone? See me after class if you didn't memorize the Bible verse from last week because that was your assignment. This week is to read this text in Romans 1 and ask those questions of it. So here we go. Finally, the Bible. Let's hear from God, not me. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it's printed in the back of the sermon notes there, so you have it right in front of you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what does this text say to us about God? Well, an aspect of God's character is wrath. Wrath is the divine punishment extended due to that which is contrary to his character. Paul is saying that when God's law is violated, God doesn't ignore it. Of course, we know that the Lord repeatedly in the Bible says that he is slow to anger and abounding in love. But God is also just. If something violates his law, he will deal with it. He does so with his wrath. That's an aspect of his character. What does this text say to us about humanity? Look at it. What does it say to us about humanity? God reveals his wrath against ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, of people. It says that people are unrighteous. That not only are they unrighteous, they're ungodly, and then they suppress the truth, it says. What does that mean? Well, suppressing the truth is an unwillingness to acknowledge what is factual. It's living in denial. You know, if you've ever uh, met a person who's really struggling with with addiction, to, to maybe it's a substance or a lifestyle. They live in denial. They won't acknowledge that there's a problem. It's destroying their life. It's ruining their relationships. And you can see it happening. You can see their life begin to unravel, and they just can't see it. They live in denial. Now, denial for a moment is good because it helps us to process really difficult information that is, is hard. But if we live in denial in an ongoing way, we're not living in the truth. And we can't live a flourishing life of progress. Let's keep going. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What does this say to us about God? God has invisible attributes. What are they? His eternal power. His divine nature. Those things, it says, have been clearly perceived. What does that mean? It means that God's power and glory are on display for every person, whether or not they've ever been into a gathering of worshipers of Jesus, whether or not they've ever read the Bible. God's glory and his character are revealed in the beauty of creation. Right? That feeling that you have when you say, let's go to the Grand Canyon. Let's go see a mountain. Or when you're at the beach and you see the sunset or the sunrise, you see, wow, God made this. Or, or you see something small. You look down into a, a microscope and you see how it works at the, at the microscopic level. You say, wow, there's design. There's glory there. And what this text is saying to us is that even though people see the glory of God, they suppress that truth. They might even say, there is no God. And one person put it to me this way. It's like, one of the reasons that, that we can tell that God exists is because the world exists. Right? If you see a painting, a beautiful painting, you've been to a museum. We went to the Getty Museum uh, this summer. And we, we were there for like 30 minutes. And then it was like, time to go, Dad. We want to get out of the museum. But we were there. And there were some paintings. And one of the things that you can tell from a painting is that there was a painter, right? That, that canvas didn't just come together on a piece of wood and get stretched out. And that paint just didn't randomly get splattered on, on the canvas. Someone thought about it and said, I want a canvas this size. I'm going to use this kind of paint and I'm going to portray this kind of image. There's a painter that comes with every painting. Well, the, when we see the world painted before our eyes, we realize there's a painter, and that's God. His glory is revealed over all. But then what does it say? What does it say, go on to say? Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is the definition of idolatry. Instead of seeing God as the creator, seeing him as glorious and, and appreciating and valuing the created things, people have made the created things ultimate. Right? In those days, we would see, well, they would take a wooden object and worship it. But in our day, we would say, well, my reputation is a good thing, but it can become an ultimate thing. If anyone threatens my reputation, if I defend it and I say, no, I'm better than that, I could be defending my reputation instead of saying, yeah, I, I, I really messed up. We can take good things and make them ultimate things, and that's when they become idols. And this is what's happened. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were dark. And you see the progress that's being made. The hole is being dug. They're working hard to dig the hole. But it's in the wrong place. They're making progress in the wrong way. Verse 22, claiming to be wise. They said, hey, we have this figured out. We know the right answers, but they're fools. Because what? They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. This is not the kind of progress that we want. 
the hearts of humanity have been darkened. You see, it's as though man knew God because he was revealed in the glory of creation. But man did not want to know God, not personally, not intimately, or not to honor God. So instead of being thankful for everything that God has given and saying, Lord, you are the one who created the universe, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do because you made the whole thing. People have refused to thank God or to give him the glory that he's due. We're willing to use God's gifts, but we're not willing to worship and praise God for those gifts. And so the result is an empty mindset. It's a, it's a darkened heart. Instead of being a worshiper of God, we've simply become philosophers, but our empty wisdom reveals only our foolishness before the creator of the universe. And having held down God's truth and refusing to acknowledge God's glory, we're left without a true God, but gods of our own making. So we have to worship something. If we don't worship one true God, we'll worship a false God. Even if we have to manufacture that God ourselves, even if it's the God that we look at in the mirror, we'll do everything we can to make sure that God is satisfied. We've exchanged the glory of the true God for substitute gods that God himself has made. We exchange the glory for shame. Incorruption for corruption. Truth for lies. Okay, take a breath. This is tough. This paints a bleak picture of humanity. I want to come to church and feel positive about the day, right? Hey, you know, you led that Christian radio station, positive hits for your family. Well, they're not preaching on Romans 1 on the radio, right? This is the bad news. This is the hard news. This is tough. It paints a bleak, bleak picture of humanity. The whole idea of I'm basically a good person gets blown out of the water with, these, with this text. And that's the, the mindset of the world today. I, well, I'm basically good because I'm better than him. But Paul is speaking to people that he loves. Right? He's speaking to the church in Rome. And if we're part of the church, he's speaking to us too. We're listening in on that conversation. We, we need to know that Paul desperately wants us to see God himself. And as we live in a difficult environment, we have to be willing to be confronted with our own idolatry and our own brokenness. And see, all they had to do was look around to look at the culture that they lived in. They, in tr the church in Rome, has no illusions about who's following Jesus and who isn't. It's probably more confusing in our day and time because a lot of people say they're following Jesus, but aren't really. They may go to church sometimes, but not really following Jesus. But for the church in Rome then, it was probably very, very obvious. And they're being oppressed. They're facing hardship. And Paul is explaining to them, this is why it is this way. So take courage in the midst of the challenge that you're facing because God will be victorious. You see, the people of Rome have no illusions about the goodness of people. See, the Jews in the church were oppressed by the Romans. The Greeks among them were cast off from society because they've committed themselves to following Jesus. But this was real life for them. And so they're getting this letter from Paul and saying, Lord, what do you want us to know? How do we, you want us to live? You see, this is for us as well. We just need to look around the culture and see there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of struggle. So here's the good news. Oh, wait, not so fast. It gets worse. Verse 24. Come on. We can do it. God is with us. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's, it's, it's striking to me that here Paul is talking about how the people have exchanged truth for a lie. But at the end of this, he says, Amen. Because I know that Paul knows that God is sovereign. That even though the news is bad, that there's darkness, that there's struggle, Paul knows that Jesus is the one who comes to bring rescue. But people have given up their hearts to impurity. And so Paul, excuse me, God, what, what he does is he, he gives them what they want. And this is the thing that, that's challenging for me. Have you ever asked for a prayer? Say, Lord, please give me this. This is what I'm asking you to do. And God didn't give it for you. I think as Garth Brooks wrote a, a song, Unanswered Prayers. And he prayed, I think it was for a woman that he wanted to marry. And God said no. And it turns out in the story that it was the best thing that could have happened to him. Now, that's a simple uh, romantic story, right? But there's this idea that we want something and we think this is what's best for us and we don't get it, we feel disappointed. And yet God knows what's best for us. He says no to us. Sometimes the worst thing that we could get will be the thing that we most desire because God is gracious to us and he won't allow it to happen because he doesn't want us to be farther and farther away from him. And so what it says is that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. For these, God is allowing them to experience the judgment of their actions. And what does it say? They've dishonored their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they've worshipped and served the, create, the creature. How does one dishonor their body? Well, there's a, there's a million ways to do it, but we see it so, so much in our culture. I think about those that struggle uh, with eating. For, for young women who have a, a, a definition of beauty that's de, um, defined by culture that says you have to look this way and you have to fit into this size and you have to do everything necessary to look in a certain uh, style. That's a difficult experience. And so many will struggle with that. What, what's real beauty? Is it this picture of a person on the outside or is it actually the person on the inside? And we see this is even more prevalent among young men who are counting every calorie and every single gram of protein to get shredded and to work out. So they're constantly looking at, well, did I, did I do the workout? Working out two, three times, uh, times a day to get so fit that, so that you can have the body that appears on the muscle magazine. It's just as prevalent for, for young men. Other ways that you can uh, dishonor your body is through prostitution, selling yourself for someone else or for pornography. And what we know in these is examples. It starts out as something small. I just want to get fit. I just want to lose a little bit of weight. But then it becomes something that takes us over. Right? I just want to make a little bit of extra money. I'm not going to be a stripper at the, at the, at the club. I'm just going to be a server at the restaurant at the club where they strip. And it's just a pattern, a progression. Right? And the more you do it, the more you become accustomed to it. It's like a callus on your hand that you get from working out. At first, your hand is in pain. But then as the calluses build up, you realize you can do more and more. In a negative sense, the more we expose ourselves to these behaviors and these cultures, the more we're desensitized to it. The farther you go, the more difficult it is to recover. Again, like an addict, it takes more and more and more to get the desired effect. What starts out as something that brings a high ends up being something that destroys. This is not the kind of progress that we want. Verse 26. For the reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the continuation of idolatry leads to yet another kind of disobedience. Here Paul is directly outlining the sexual activity that is outside the covenant of marriage, which is designed to lead to human flourishing, has now been twisted and used in a, in a way that does not lead to flourishing. He's stating that same-sex sex is contrary to nature, or it's a shameless act. Now, I recognize that this statement is a challenging one today. Our, our culture has taken on a significant shift on this issue in the last 20 or 30 years. It's such a significant shift, you might even say that the, the script has been flipped. I was listening to a pastor who's about 40 uh, talk about this, and he grew up in Portland, Oregon, where his father was a pastor. And he said, growing up in the church, my dad was a pastor, and I had a bunch of friends, and most of them were not Christians. And we all hung out together, and I had made a commitment in my life not to have sex uh, before marriage. And all my friends knew that, and they knew that was the right thing to do. They believed that was the right thing to do, but most of them didn't have that same conviction. But they thought what I was doing is the right thing. Well, flash forward 20, 30 years. Now we're in a different environment. We're in a different environment today. It's actually considered wrong to tell someone you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage because that is an oppressive point of view. Who are you to tell me what I should do with my body? That's considered oppressive, which is wrong. And it's also wrong for you to not give in to every desire that you have. That's repressive. You should be exercising those options. Because if you're not, you're denying your true self. So you're being repressive. So what 30 or 40 years ago, the quote, right or wrong thing to do was this, and now it's actually reversed. And that's the culture that we live in today. In a matter of decades, what was right became wrong, and what was wrong became right. But here we are with Paul and what he's saying. What does it say about God? What does it say about humanity? According to Scripture, this is not the kind of progress that God wants for the world. And I recognize this is not a popular uh, point of view. Uh, if you have an issue with what I'm saying, then go to Paul and wrestle with it there. Because I'm trying to be faithful to what I think Paul is saying and that the Bible teaches in other places beyond what just Paul is saying to the church in Rome. But think about the impact of Paul's words when he said it to the church in Rome. Right? Back then, homosexual culture had been, homosexual sex had been part of the culture for years and years and years. It was ingrained in the everyday activities. People would have been like, what are you talking about, man? What, what's with these verses here? But you've got to think that when, when God sent his word to his people, it was a radical thing then that, hey, uh, one man and one woman should be in a covenant of marriage together. That's not how it had ever worked before then. Some have said that when God sent his word and made these, uh, these truths, it was the most radical thing. Because no one was doing one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage until God sent his word. And yet God's word revealed in Romans. Let's keep going. We've got a few more verses to get through. 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faith, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Right? We see ourselves in those last verses. We recognize that for us, that's part of who we are. So while we may not be giving ourselves over to the sexual practice that Paul is specifically addressing here, we recognize that we're sinful too. That we're part of the story. It's not like, well, here's us and here's them and they're the ones that God is judging and we're okay. It's not us and them. It's only us. And yet the sin that's in our lives is manifested in different ways. It's manifested in different ways. You see, the end result of the progression is a downward spiral. And here's the challenge that we have. How do we apply what Paul is saying to the church in Rome that he's wanting to encourage and to support and he's wanting them to differentiate themselves as followers of Jesus? How do we apply this? What should we be doing in response to God's word? Because some have said, well, let's just assimilate into the culture. And whatever the culture says, it's what we should do. And we'll just go along with, with whatever a TV tells me. But other people get real strident, right? very angry. And what often happens is they say, well, we can identify this sin and this sin. And God is against these sins. And if you're doing these two, you're bad. And if you're not, you're doing good. Never mind we forget about a racial injustice, not caring for the poor, these other issues that God has his heart on. We can just say, well, it's only about these two things. You know, it's about uh, homosexuality and abortion. Sometimes they're referred to as the James Dobson sins because he was so focused on those things. And those things are important to be focused on. But not so important that we lose sight of the whole picture of the brokenness of humanity, that each one of us is in need of grace. So how do we respond? We don't want to just assimilate and say, well, whatever you want to do, because we see where that leads. But we also don't want to get so strident and angry about one or two particular things that we lose sight of all the rest of it. Well, I think that we should do what Jesus does. And this is, this is your homework for the week, is to ask, what, what is God calling you to do? What is, how is God asking you to minister to and to care for the people in your life that struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria or adultery or fornication how do you love them in a way that you can show them Jesus because what does Jesus do when he encounters the sinners right those who are on the outside of culture Jesus is not pointing a finger at them and saying you better change your life before you get into relationship with me what does he do he moves toward them he comes and envelops them in, in an embrace in relationship right and so as they see and encounter him that's how they become changed uh, Brandy was sharing with me just this week. She's uh, working for a, a counseling practice. And one of her roles there is to receive calls from people who are going through difficult times and need someone to talk to. They need a therapist. When you call the phone number, Brandy answers. And people are calling like crazy. She has so many calls for people that are needing someone to talk to. And I want to say, if you need someone to talk to, find someone to talk to. It's a good thing to meet with someone to process the pain that you are experiencing, that you have experienced, 
the isolation that you feel, the anxiety that you feel, the tension, whatever it is, find someone to talk to. If you need to talk to someone, call me. I can talk with you. I'd be happy to talk with you. Or if you want to talk with someone, if you want a therapist, call Brandy's practice. Talk to her about it. It's good to have people to get a sounding board for whatever grief or pain or struggle that you're facing. It's a good thing. But it blows me away how many people are calling with problems with anxiety, problems with addiction, uh, drug addiction, sex addiction, uh, all manner of, of struggles, abusive situations. And she was just saying to me that a guy called uh, just recently and he wanted to talk with someone because his family had rejected him. He had grown up in a fundamentalist church and he didn't want anyone uh, that when he met with to talk to him about his sexuality, but he said, I am gay. And it was fascinating to me as we were, she was sharing this story, is that here's a man who's been, who feels rejected.